Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Chiropractic Research Podcast Series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I will be your host for this interview. Just a brief background about myself. I am a clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University and also maintain a private practice of chiropractic in Eaton, Ohio at Essence of Wellness Chiropractic Center. I obtained a Doctor of Chiropractic degree from National College of Chiropractic in 1997 and a PhD in Brain and Cognitive Science with a focus on motor behavior and postural control from Miami University in 2004. My research interests lie broadly in the area of human movement and coordination, and I am most interested in how chiropractic and exercise, as well as rehabilitation, affect human performance. My goals for producing these research interviews are, one, to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research. Dissemination of research findings is an important part of the research process. Publicizing these interviews passes on the benefits of chiropractic research to other researchers, chiropractors in practice, as well as practitioners from other disciplines and the wider community. Number two is to encourage collaboration of researchers to promote future high-quality chiropractic research. Number three is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. Let's go ahead and get to our first interview with Dr. Gregory Kramer. Well, I'd like to uh, welcome Dr. Gregory Kramer, uh, DC, PhD, uh, to the uh, talk today. And this is our very first uh, interview uh, that we're doing for chiropractic researchers. So uh, thank you very much, Dr. Kramer, for agreeing to uh, be a part of this. It's an honor. Well, uh, I'd just like to go through uh, a summary of... Uh, your background, and uh, and then we'll go ahead and do questions after that. So Gregory Kramer, DCPhD, graduated from the National College of Chiropractic in 1979 and was in clinical practice for five years before pursuing a career in research and teaching. He received his PhD in uh, anatomy, basic medical sciences in 1987 from the Medical College of Ohio uh, at Toledo and then began teaching and conducting research at National University of Health Sciences, where he currently is professor and dean of research. He is interested in promoting evidence-based complementary and alternative medicine and evidence-based practice, CAM disciplines research, and human and animal research designed to determine the mechanisms of action of spinal manipulation. He has worked on over two dozen federally and privately funded research projects related to these goals. He has received several awards for research, including the 2005 American Chiropractic Association Researcher of the Year Award. And he has published over 150 abstracts, papers, and book chapters. He is author of a text entitled Clinical Anatomy of the Spine, Spinal Cord, and Autonomic Nervous System. The third edition, which was published just here in 2013, which I just got a copy of not too long ago, so that's great. He is currently the chair uh, the Research Working Group of uh, the Academic Consortium for Complementary and Alternative Healthcare. So, Greg, thanks uh, very much again for uh, agreeing to uh, be on this interview with me, and it's uh, it's absolutely my pleasure to have you on. Um, being a, a former student of yours, I have extremely fond memories of uh, going through case studies uh, with you at National College of Chiropractic, um, and 
and then since uh, uh, graduation, uh, having the opportunity uh, and the pleasure to work with you on on a few projects here and there, and some research uh, uh, and letters uh, to the editor that seemed to be uh, something of our focus here recently. <laughs> That's been fun. Um, so, Dr. Kramer, um, let's uh, let's start not necessarily at the beginning, but uh, let's let's start early on in your career. Um, can you tell me about your experience growing up uh, with a chiropractor as a father, mm -hmm. and uh, is that how you became interested in chiropractic as a profession? Oh, very much. Uh, my dad graduated from Lincoln uh, Chiropractic College, which merged with National, and um, he was uh, started practicing in Ohio in the late 50s. I think he started in 55. Actually, it was 55 he started in uh, in Ohio, and uh, Ohio didn't have a chiropractic law at the time, but he was one of the uh, few who had passed the medical board. Uh, they had a medical board of basic sciences and clinical sciences, if I recall, and so he'd passed both of those, and uh, which was there weren't that many who had, and so he could practice very freely at the time and was very interested in getting uh, a law in chiro uh, a chiropractic law in Ohio and so was uh, uh active in the Ohio State Chiropractic Association great for uh i think pretty much since he began practice so the reason i say that is uh we would always have uh, at our in our family we always had dinner to, together and we'd talk about our day then it would always come around to chiropractic. And he'd talk about, he loved chiropractic history, and we'd talk about, um, you know, everything from Dee Dee Palmer to uh, to BJ to, he loved Jancy, and we'd end up there a lot of times. And the uh, the five um, chiropractors who started Lincoln, uh, they had uh, moved away from, from Palmer to start Lincoln, and he was very proud of them. And, uh, and so that was... Uh, what we would discuss, and then the challenges of chiropractic at the time. Okay. And uh, and so that was uh, uh, really great. And then I would go to, you know, after we played baseball or something, uh, I would go to his office because uh, we lived a few miles out in the country uh, for the first 10 years. And, and so, uh, you know, I'd sit in his office, and he'd come in between patients, and we'd talk about... Uh, I'm sure HIPAA laws HIP were not passed at the time. <laughs> tell me about the patients, always saying, you know, you don't tell anyone else about this. But he'd show me x-rays, talk about the problems. He just loved, he loved practice. Oh, and, what a uh, neat experience. It was, it was. And then I, you know, the it was a, a, a large old house that had been turned into a doctor's office before him. But it took a lot of work. And so I was always working on it, and, and so I was always around it. Okay. So that was great. So the clinical side I was really interested in, but then also the um, the profession as a whole. And so after I, I were doing this interview at uh, Miami University of Ohio, where, where Dean is a uh, uh, clinical professor, and, um, and so I did my pre-chiropractic here at Miami, and then then went to uh, National and, and finished up there and, and came back to practice with Dad in northern Ohio, small town, Wasian, and loved it, um, but was always interested in advancing the profession. And I guess my perception of chiropractic um, 
being so saturated with it was um, not consistent with the the public's what I perceived to be the public's perception of it, and there was a disconnect. So I got involved in the in the Ohio State Chiropractic Association, and I remember having meetings with legislators to get better laws and and that sort of thing. And they'd say, "What research do you have?" and uh-huh. uh, and there wasn't much at that time. This was in the in the late seventies, early eighties, and so. Um, and then also at the same time when I was treating patients, I just uh, wondered what am I, uh, how is this treatment really affecting them? Mm-hmm. And I had a, um, Dr. Jancy had a model that he, uh, a theoretical model that he um, discussed from time to time. He would go from, uh, I think he would have lectures outside of national and he would kind of warm up on one of the classes. You know, he'd, he'd walk down the hall and, and walk into a classroom. And I'm sure the professor, this would not fly these days, but he would walk into a class. The professor was basically expected to go to the side and he'd go up and he would talk. And, and, the, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it when he would do that. And um, we were a larger class, so he seemed to do it quite a bit to us, at least once a semester. And um, and he'd talk about a variety of things, you know, legislation that's that's pending, mm-hmm. or the the Wilk trial was kind of gearing up toward ah. the end of the time I was there, and and that was creating a lot of discussion of you know pros and cons, and and then he would talk about your, your patients, treating your patients, and. And he'd get into the mechanism of, uh, he was really loved anatomy, uh, thought of the mechanisms okay. of manipulation. And his theory was, his theoretical model was that the joints of the spine become hypomobile. The zygopophyseal joints or facet joints become hypomobile for a variety of reasons. Uh, if you have a patient that sits a lot and doesn't exercise, they're becoming hypomobile, stands a lot, doesn't exercise. If they're doing repetitive activities, some of the joints are being loaded repetitively and not moving much. Others may be moving. So some of the joints are becoming hypomobile. And that these joints develop adhesions uh, and uh, that spinal manipulation gaps the joints, separates the joint surfaces, moves them, breaking up adhesions, reestablishing joint motion. And... Um, and that was the best explanation I had heard the whole time I was there. And uh, and it stuck with me. And then my dad would always say, motion is life to a joint. That's what yes, he would discuss yes. with his patients. And so the two fused, they were uh, consistent. And that's how I would explain what I was doing to uh, when I was talking to patients. But there was very little, um, when you looked into it, there was little um, scientific evidence to support uh, that theoretical model. So um, between the frustration of the political uh, arena that uh, chiropractic didn't seem to be progressing or, or accepted, as I thought, and um, this lack of scientific evidence to support the mechanisms, um, that became very frustrating to me, and I thought, well, I can either sit around and complain about this all my life, or I can try to do something. <laughs> so yeah. I applied to uh, graduate school at uh, Medical College of Ohio in, a, uh, in their anatomy program, and it's now the um, Medical College of the University of Toledo. And um, they had some really great anatomists there, really good anatomists. 
and um, and I was accepted into the program. And I said, well, I'll apply. If I don't get accepted, then that's good. I've tried, and I'll just uh, stay in practice and be happy. But I kept moving forward, so I was accepted. And then I thought, well, I'll do both. I'll practice and go to graduate school. But in basic sciences, they pretty much told you uh, – Within the first two weeks, I was told that, you know, you're going. This is a full time thing. You're going to have to um, got it. Pretty much give up your practice. But I didn't have a uh, a fellowship yet, so I I practiced part time for the first eight months. Okay. Yeah, Wednesday and Friday nights and Saturdays till noon. Wow. And could see a fair number of patients. Was it a pretty close commute? I, it was about an hour. Oh wow! Okay. About an hour, and um, and then I also moved to Toledo. Uh, the first time I was late for a quiz, <laughs> that uh, that scared me into moving, and then uh, and then it was four years there. So I was at uh, Medical College of Ohio in anatomy, and they had a really good anatomy department there, and um, and so that was uh, a very interesting experience. And it was full time, very full time. Um, you know, you're pretty much there constantly except for four hours of sleep a night basically <laughs> uh, for the four years and uh, I learned a lot. Uh, MRI had just come out and so um, my major advisor was doing a, a comparative uh, an anatomy text that did uh, cross-sections um, uh, of cadaveric material and then uh, of cadavers, full cadavers in uh, the three main planes and then uh, correlated that with uh, CT and CT reconstruction and okay. MRI. Okay. And MRI had just come out. There were three units in Ohio in uh, 80. Uh, uh, so I started in 83 and uh, got the PhD in 87. And, uh, and so this was like 84, 85 when I was doing the, and 86 when I was doing the research. Um, and so there was three units, MRI units in Ohio, two at Cleveland Clinic, and, and Ohio State had just built one. And so I'd, I would drive down to Columbus oh, wow. and, uh, and collect images there for the book. And then also um, my research was on uh, comparative volumetry of the ventricles of the brain with uh, CT and MRI. Okay. And... Uh, and so I, I did that, and then uh, I wanted to do something more related to chiropractic, but no one was really interested. And as you know, in PhD work, you really need your uh, advisors need to be uh, really familiar with the material uh, to guide you properly. And plus, I think it's good to do work in an area that's not um, um, something you're passionate about, for lack of a better term, because you can be unbiased and learn research well uh, and just want to do it right and, and mm -hmm. uh, get the concepts right. So worked out, and then I went to National where I was interested. It's where I taught uh, anatomy and uh, continued doing and did research, started research on the spine using MRI and CT, computerized tomography, in uh, assessing... Um, this theoretical model that Dr. Jancy had uh, had discussed, and uh, and so um, that's where that's been twenty plus years, um, going on almost thirty years of looking at that theoretical model. Now there is, I should say, some people hear this model and say, well, don't you think that there are any neurologic effects? And there are, and Dr. Jancy felt there were too. Um, that you know, when you gap the joints, you stretch the capsule that has uh, um, uh, both pain-suppressive effects via Malzac wall 
gating mechanism, and also um, what uh, Wyke termed a reflexogenic effect. That's his term. He's a medical neurologist, not mine. Uh, and uh, which is relaxation of the muscles at the level of adjusting or manipulation and several segmental levels above and, and below. And there, there is evidence um, to support both of those neurologic models mm-hmm. now. Um, uh, animal studies have shown decrease in dorsal horn um, um, activation. Um, uh, so... So pain in an animal model, creating pain uh, stimulates neurons in the dorsal horn and uh, intracellular recordings of those are um, show diminished activity when there's pressure placed on the Z-joints. And then also uh, pressure on by um, injecting uh, isotonic saline into the Z-joints and stretching the capsule, that has... Uh, um, been found to uh, decrease uh, multifidus and longissimus muscle activity in hypertonic muscles that are also created um, by uh, stimulating spinal pain in animals. So, okay. so there is um, um, evidence now for for that neurologic piece. But I wanted to focus on um, this mechanical model. Um, because, as you know, in research, especially basic science research, it's basically drilling deep. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're too broad, you're 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 not um, you can get some good information. But you really need to drill deep when you're interested in mechanism. So I focused on that mechanical model of seeing if there was. And uh, do you think that that came from your interest uh, from anatomy as well? And and and. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get back to your time at the Medical College of Ohio. Was, mm. uh, in getting there, was uh, was your interest derived from from Dr. Jancy's work and uh, in getting into anatomy? And then, mm-hmm. how did you get to that program? I don't mm. want to step too far back, but I I am just interested in how you got to the Medical College of Ohio and mm-hmm. anatomy specifically. And did you foresee mm-hmm. at that point that? Anatomy was what you needed to take you to the next step to to look at these models. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was interested in research, and so I wanted to do a PhD. And I looked at different programs, basically in Toledo, because I, I thought I my thought at that time was I could practice at the same time and do a PhD. And um, and the Medical College of Ohio had the best concentration of scientists. And I probably would have gone to Chicago. I committed at that time. By the time I was accepted or close to being accepted, I, I had pretty much told myself, okay, I want to do everything I can to, to move in this direction. So I p- probably would have applied to other programs if I wasn't accepted there. But they had a, a program in biomedical sciences where you would, it was a very integrated program, but you would choose a basic science discipline, so anatomy, biochemistry, pathology, physiology, pharmacology, and micro were the primary uh, areas that they had. Okay. Um, And diagnostic imaging had a program, too. Um, 
which I was very interested in. And at National, we always had National, as you know, prides itself on uh, a strong anatomy program. It was mm-hmm. the first chiropractic program to have uh, cadaveric dissection. Oh, I didn't know that. It started in 1908. So it moved from um, Davenport, uh, where it began in 1906, to Chicago in 1908 okay. to be around um, so they could draw uh, more uh, science-based faculty because uh, Fitz Allen Howard was very interested in um, the scientific basis of chiropractic. So right from the beginning, he was the founder. And uh, and he wanted to start an anatomy lab, and he did from the beginning. So, so in 1908, there was an anatomy lab. And, doc- and, and so that was a part of the history and tradition. Dr. Jancy uh, would come into the anatomy lab when we were um, when we were taking anatomy, and I would follow him around like a little puppy dog, <laughs> and just do and just listen to him whenever he was in the lab, and he was so passionate about it, and uh, so that uh, that was interesting. And we also had a very strong diagnostic imaging program. So so when I was looking at um, um, those basic sciences, anatomy was my first choice. And then when we were exploring projects, I had a I had a fantastic major advisor, Delmas Allen, um, who had taught at Palmer somewhere along the line. He mm. was at a uh, uh, an undergraduate school in Iowa okay. and taught neuro at Palmer um, while he was there. Interesting. I think that was before he had his Ph.D., and then he went on to do his Ph.D. and then was in medical colleges. So he was uh, open to chiropractic. He was an outstanding neuroanatomist and teacher and was uh, very interested in, in a lot of ideas. And so he told me, he, he uh, and I think that's the key uh, to a good, to a Ph.D. program is having a good major advisor. Mm-hmm. I think that basically, uh, in my mind, is what determines whether how successful you'll be in the program, whether you'll complete it efficiently. And he wanted me to complete it efficiently. In f- four years for a PhD, as you know, is extremely fast. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so he told me you should start thinking about research while I was doing my coursework the first right off the bat. And so we worked out a lot of ideas, and he was interested in neuro, and they were doing this MRI and, and CT book. Great. And so that seemed like something I could apply to the spine in the future. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I really liked anatomy and imaging. And so that's how that worked out. Great. And uh, you're talking about the following Dr. Jancy around like a puppy. I, I remember following you and Dr. Bacham around and, <laughs> and just trying to glean as much uh, anatomical knowledge as I could. <laughs> Uh, it's one of my very fond memories of National. Well, you turned out pretty good. So well, <laughs> you're doing great here at Miami, and Thank your you. private practice is thriving. And so you've really uh, been kind of a renaissance chiropractor in, in your ability to continue practice and do research and teach at a major university. So that's well, thank you we very need more, much. More like you. Thank you. Now, you're also, also the uh, author of the book, Clinical Anatomy of the Spine, Spinal Cord, and Autonomic Nervous System. So that gets into our, further into our discussion of anatomy. Uh, and that's yeah, with, co-author, co-author with, with the, Dr. Darby. Yes. Uh-huh. We'll um, and this is a book that I, 
I personally used and still use, uh, and I just got my third edition, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for buying uh, it. And uh, So this book is a reference of choice on spinal anatomy for chiropractic, osteopathic, medical students. Um, and I can't imagine how much time that took, Greg, to, mm-hmm. to go through that. Uh, can you tell us about your experience of writing the book? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was teaching spinal anatomy, and... Um, there really wasn't a good reference text at the at the time. Most anatomy texts covered spine, but it, it always seemed uh, like an afterthought. Um, and um, and my experience in graduate school was that they would actually start with the spine, but they wouldn't spend a lot of time on it. And I think it was to to get the students ready for uh, cadaveric dissection to kind of get them acclimated to anatomy and the cadaver. So it wasn't really a it wasn't really a focus and I think that showed in the in the texts. And so I thought, well, um maybe we should uh uh maybe I could do this. And so uh, I committed to it and several um um publishers were interested and I thought it would be good to cover you know, not just the spine, but uh, but of course neuro related to the spine as well. And so mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Darby was teaching neuro at National and is a uh, very well respected teacher and an outstanding anatomist. And um, and so she was uh, willing to to do it. And and so um, Mosby Yearbook at the time, um, there were several publishers that were interested, but. Um, the the person from Mosby, Jim Shanahan was his name. He would uh, yearbook had an office in downtown Chicago, so he would come in and we'd talk, and then he'd write a letter afterwards uh, that was very thoughtful. Mm. And he did this a few times and would give suggestions on how he thought things might progress or okay. what a good textbook would look like. Mm. And at the time, I really needed somebody who was knowledgeable in publishing and <clears throat> and how to think about a textbook in that way. So we went with him because he was just so much better than the others. And um, and so they gave us a two-year deadline, and it basically took... So every... I didn't use any of National's time for the first edition. <clears throat> so every evening and every weekend, every holiday, every spare minute outside of national for um uh, was spent and it took four years to do that and so for the last two years i was getting um regular calls from the editor you know prodding me on and with anatomy as you know there's we uh we were blessed to have um i think um we were given 225 um illustrations so we hired we could we had a grant from from mosby to hire an illustrator, and we hired a young illustrator named Sally Cummings, who was very talented. And it takes... um, One thing I wasn't prepared for, I should have been, but I really wasn't, is that with anatomy, the images are as important as the text, really. Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot of work to do uh, an illustration, to work with an illustrator to get an illustration right. And then, uh, and then we did also use um, 
dissections. And uh, Bill Frank, uh, who's now Dr. Frank in uh, Wauseon, Ohio, he, he bought oh. my dad's practice. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And uh, uh, he did the dissections. <clears throat> he was anatomy fellow at the time and did the dissections for the text. And, um, you know, I would work with him as far as what we needed to see. And, and he did a wonderful job on the we had a very well muscled cadaver um and so the musculature turned out really well awesome. we've never needed to replace it because i don't i i don't think we could do any better he did a beautiful job and and uh, so anyway that the illustrations photography um ron menching who's now vp at national mm -hmm. was oh, a okay. photographer at the time he did a fabulous job with the photography and um and then we got uh, MRIs, CTs, and X-rays from Dennis Scogsberg for the first edition, and uh, and I did all the labeling on all of that, um, you know, passing it by Dennis, of course, to make sure it was right, and and uh, um, so that took an enormous amount of time. Plus, the writing took a lot of time, so I was very late in getting it in, and it was very stressful. And uh, my my son was very young at the time, and and didn't spend much time with him at all, which is one of the regrets of my life during that time. Uh, so it did, um, there was a sacrifice uh, there, which, uh, you know, in retrospect, you know, you don't know if it's sure. worth it or not, but uh, sure. but that was what uh, what I did. And, and, um, and so uh, we finished the first edition. It was well-received, thank goodness. It was... Uh, uh, given an award as a text of excellence by the um, North American Spine Society, which uh, gave it a, a good boost, and um, and so and a lot of colleges used it, which was great. And then the second edition, uh, um, I they wanted one year, so that was ten years later, but they wanted one year to complete it. It took two, and so it was the same <laughs> stressful situation. Oh. We added two hundred and. 60 pages, I think, to the second edition. Wow. Really did a major yeah. uh, revision from all the suggestions we've gotten from the first edition. Really expanded it dramatically. A lot more illustrations and uh, and uh, figures. And then the third edition uh, that just came out, I asked for two years, and it took exactly two years. So we were right on sync. And so uh, from now on, if we ever if we're blessed with any more editions, it'll be two years. <laughs> two years. And... Uh, we added a lot of uh, 50 more figures, mostly X-rays, MRI, CTs, because one of the reviewers, I'm sure, was a, a radiologist, uh, and uh, that was his or her suggestion to uh, to increase the number of uh, images, and so we did, and uh, updated. You know, we went over, um, I think it was 1,500 papers that uh, you know we from 10,000 that were somewhat relevant we got down to 1500 that were directly relevant so incorporated that new information throughout great so that's uh so it's a lot it's a lot of work and it also takes away so the sacrifice for uh and i did use nationals time uh for the second and third editions um uh, less for the second but for this third edition i just have no you know i'm in my uh, late 50s now, and, and there's just uh, uh, 
stamina isn't what it used to. And plus, um, I think it's important. You know, it's it's a it's a scholarship that National appreciates, which uh, I'm grateful for. But the downside is it takes away from research time. Sure, so, um, sure. so it it does. Uh, uh, Decreased productivity in in research as far as slows down the progress, but I think textbooks are important. Period. But I think they're important in complementary and alternative medicine because there are so few textbooks that are, especially basic science textbooks, that are targeted to um, uh, a CAM audience. Right. And I think it's important because the clinical. Um, vignettes that you use or clinical applications that are woven through a clinical anatomy text, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we tried to be neutral, not to be, uh, because a lot of medical students use it, and, and especially residents in orthopedics and, and uh, imaging and, and uh, physical medicine. So we, we try to be neutral, but on the other hand, we do include... Uh, um, sections on the evidence for uh, manipulation when we do the z-joints etc so um, and I think also as a chiropractor or a person who does manipulation that guides your focus uh, on um, on making sure that that a that a discussion of anatomy is complete for the for the spine and the importance of being complete and the, the surgeons also appreciate that as well. So, Oh, yes. I, yeah. I just think it's such a, a wonderful um, uh, resource for the chiropractic profession and for the spine community, I think, as a whole. So mm-hmm. uh, just amazing. And I always use it uh, when I need quick information on, oh, what's, what, uh, what, what's the innervation to the Z-joint or what's the innervation to this or that mm-hmm. is something that I always look up. <laughs> and now with e-books, so, it's easy to... Uh, to, to get that's right. easier to get that well, information. Well, that's right. And the neuro is excellent. I think having the neuro in there is uh, is a really positive thing. And we have development, uh, developmental anatomy, and um, and pediatric spine. And so we try to end um, uh, histology of uh, tissues related to the spine. So we try to be able to um, have it serve um, all of the needs of anatomy for uh, for the spine so great well uh, the next thing I wanted to ask you about uh, and if I could I just want to do a, a quick summary of some of your research over the years I was looking on uh, PubMed last night okay <laughs> and uh, just typed in your name and, and looked up all the studies and some of the studies I, I haven't read yet so I look mm. forward to reading them uh, many of the studies I have and it seemed like uh, your early studies uh, uh, coming out of the Ph.D. work certainly were on mm. anatomy-specific. Mm. Um, and then uh, I noticed you had published a, a historical paper. That looked really uh-huh. interesting. That's one I haven't read yet. Um, and then uh, a lot of the studies uh, have focused on this concept of getting to what does an adjustment do. Mm-hmm. And so you've incorporated both uh, animal models mm-hmm. as well as human mm-hmm. Um, in trying to answer this question. Um, and uh, so a lot of it has seemed to focus on, on Z-joints mm-hmm. and getting to what we were talking about earlier with mm-hmm. your um, uh, 
your interest with Dr. Jancy's work and getting to the explaining what the mechanisms are, the physical mechanisms behind an adjustment mm-hmm. and how uh, adjustments seem to, to gap Z joints. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where I, I focused uh, last night when I was looking at some of your research was uh, looking at these studies. And you've done a lot with uh, MRIs mm-hmm. and looking at how the Z joints are different between, uh, let's say, uh, uh, someone just in a position, like a side posture position, mm-hmm. um, versus getting adjusted. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those studies mm-hmm. and uh, uh, what you were trying to get at and, and, and w- what did you find in those studies? Yeah, so we wanted to um, look at changes in the spine following adjusting and during adjusting. That's still what I'm interested in. And... Um, so we focused then on a motion segment, so two vertebrae and the soft tissue between it, and what happens during an adjustment there. And so I started with the Z-joint, because that was uh, Chancy's model. And, um, and so we actually started by making measurements of the intervertebral foramen, which uh, the Z-joint forms a posterior border of it. So um, if you make comparative measurements of the top and bottom of the intervertebral foramen, you're actually looking at uh, uh, the top measurement uh, uh, hits the uh, inferior articular process and the bottom measurement hits the superior articular process. So by comparing those two measurements, you can get a sense of motion of the Z joints. But you get into the, so a lot of the first 10 years was based on reliability studies. So you see a lot of uh, general morphometry of the IVF mm-hmm. and comparing uh, MRI with CT and all that. So that's basically calibrating the system sure. and doing reliability it studies. <laughs> it does. It takes a long time. And, um, and so we then, you get this compounding of errors when you're uh, making measurements and subtracting the two. Um, uh, you get into this theory of compounding of errors and the resolution of MRI in that area, we're right at the border of being able to detect these differences. So one of uh, my graduate students was Ray Tuck, and he said, and I was using parasagittal images because they were the most striking to me in graduate school when we were doing Mm -hmm. the text. You can see the Z joints fully. And he said, why don't you just measure the uh, Z-joint space from horizontal images? And I'm almost embarrassed to say, I ha- you know, I, uh, I hadn't really thought of that seriously. And so we started doing that, and we could get very good measurements, very reliable. You don't have that compounding problem, compounding of error. And um, so then uh, we did a pilot study um, that was uh, um, funded by... FCER, if I recall, and then we did, uh, and then NIH funded uh, a larger study on that, uh, just assessing the Z joints before and after manipulation. Um, and I don't know if it's useful to get into the, you know, we we would uh, to properly design the study. We had four experimental groups uh, that were in different positions. Um, you know, the neutral position for the first MRI scan and the side posture position after the adjustment, 
other groups that were back in the neutral position after the adjustment, groups that um, received adjusting, groups that just received side posture positioning. And so we found that um, both side posture positioning and I should back up and say that McFadden and Taylor had published in the journal Spine in 1990 that the joints of the lumbar region, I was focusing on the lumbar region because they're the largest and we could uh, make reliable measurements. Okay. And uh, so anyway, um, that the joints, of the, he, uh, uh, McFadden and Taylor said that the joints of the lumbar spine do not gap uh, during rotation and basically said, if you, if you read the discussion of the paper, they're basically strongly implying that chiropractors are misinforming their patients if they tell their patients that they're gapping the joints. Okay. So, um, and they said that the joints would only gap in the most severely degenerated spines, and again implying that, and those shouldn't be treated by, you know, manipulation, but if the joints were within normal anatomic limits, that they would not gap. So we wanted to start with joints within normal anatomic limits and see if they gapped. So we used healthy subjects in the first study that was funded by NIH. We did find that they gapped, that they gapped in both side posture position and with manipulation, and they gapped significantly more with manipulation than with side posture positioning alone. And uh, McFann and Taylor, that was a category. We did this study on humans uh, with MRI, obviously, and... Um, McFadden and Taylor used uh, cadavers, and they extended, they had the spines in uh, extension uh, and then rotated them. And as you know, the Z joints and the lumbar spine lock, in, mm -hmm. in essence, in extension and don't allow rotation. And so, uh, as you know, during side posture manipulation, you flex the spine, you induce flexion along mm -hmm. with rotation, and uh, I think that's why we got opposite results, basically. And then we continued that with uh, a study we finished um, a couple years ago on low back pain subjects, uh, again funded by NIH, found basically the same thing. Okay. Um, except uh, we, in this case, we studied them both when they first came, um, uh, first presented with their back pain, and then after two weeks of treatment. And we found that initially side posture positioning creates more gapping when they initially present. Right. But spinal manipulation was the only group that had decreased pain during the um, during the procedure. So so and perhaps that means that if pain is their primary complaint upon presentation that manipulation's important if uh, if function is their primary disability upon presentation, you may want to focus more on, on uh, more mobilization and side posture at the beginning. Okay. All of the patients were treated with manipulation for the two weeks and from a menu of physical therapy modalities, and they all got uh, Williams low back exercises. Now, if I, if I read that correctly, uh, it seemed like uh, at the beginning of the study, the, the folks that were uh, going to get manipulation started out with pretty minor amount of gapping and then by the end of the two weeks yeah after two experienced weeks a pretty massive compared to the other groups yeah change in the after two weeks of chiropractic care and all uh, all patients received the same type of care because we were just interested in mechanisms at those mri experimental times at presentation and after two weeks of treatment 
And so uh, after two weeks of treatment, then the groups changed. Then the manipulation group um, uh, showed more gapping than the other groups, including side posture. Side posture still showed gapping. And, uh, and so the, the graph started to look very similar to the healthy subjects. And if we would have done another experiment at four weeks, and the original grant had the, um, had the assessments at two weeks of treatment and four weeks. Okay. But the reviewers uh, said we should do it um, initially um, and then subsequently. And so we decided initially and then at two weeks okay. rather than initially and at four weeks because we wanted to capture them when they still had at least uh, uh, had some pain, some pain and, they, yeah. and they did at two weeks. I, I mean, they, they were all significantly improved, mm-hmm. um, um, but um, there was still some pain involved in some of the subjects, so we could capture that. And then the four weeks, uh, I think uh, it's reasonable to extrapolate that the four weeks would look very similar to the healthy subject mm-hmm. study mm-hmm. because the graphs were... Uh, were dramatically moving in that direction. So one conclusion that we made that that I made is that I think side posture positioning has therapeutic benefit and that um, uh, and so what um, uh, some of the people involved in their research are doing now they'll do a side posture adjustment and leave them in the side posture if they're comfortable in that position for 5, 10, 15 seconds afterwards just to keep the gapping going. And it makes sense because you're gapping the joints. If you're breaking up adhesions, it keeps the joints gapped so that that uh, uh, allows the joints to be separated, the joint surfaces to be separated. Because when you go back into the uh, uh, supine position, the joints close again. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we think that that's why, one reason why it may take, you know, 7 to 12 adjustments seems to be, uh, and the literature is now showing that, what it takes for a typical low back pain case. So you, so you know, you're gapping the joints and uh, breaking up some adhesions, probably not all of them, and uh, then the patient is still in pain, decreased activity, and um, and so you need to adjust them multiple times to get the joints freely moving. Um, and so a few things come from this. It's important to uh, to start rehabilitative exercise as quickly as possible. Right. So that they are moving the joints, uh, you know, motion is life to a joint, as we said. Yeah. So um, as soon as possible, but it also takes several, several treatments. And then we've done a series of animal studies, as you know, where we created hypomobility and did find both adhesion development and degenerative change. Right. And so um, we feel that that helps to support this theoretical model that started with Jancy's. But I, I, I definitely want to follow up on that just a little bit with the, uh, the subluxation model or joint dysfunction model, mm-hmm. uh, whatever the preferred term is. Uh, <laughs> uh, I personally like subluxation and adjusting. Um, but uh, yep. it, it seems that the animal studies, I, I think, are really powerful that you've done uh, because... Uh, when looking at them, it seemed like the the adhesions would start to develop very quickly within a matter of a few weeks period of time, mm-hmm. and the 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 larger I think you called the moderate mm-hmm. moderate lesions started 
and I, sh I guess I should say adhesions, not lesions, but the moderate adhesions started, if, if I remember correct, at about two to three weeks' time period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one could assume that those would just continue to get larger with mm -hmm. the more that they're in that hypomobile state. Mm -hmm. And so your studies just follow up very well with one another. They, they merge so, so greatly uh, in that, you know, you can show in an animal model that you're developing these adhesions, and yet, with the uh, MRI studies that you've done, you can show that you also are capable of gapping them. Mm -hmm. And so, as you said, uh, life is motion. And, um, you know, I've, I've tried to implement this into my own clinical practice by, you know, I'll have people lay on their side in a sideline type of posture at home as a home kind of treatment mm -hmm. uh, to follow up. And oftentimes I'll just say, you see how you know, what posture you're in when I'm adjusting you, I want you to basically replicate that. Not necessarily try to self-adjust, but just mm -hmm. get into that, mimic that kind of posture mm -hmm. um, to to maximize, uh, you know, this potential therapeutic benefit. Um, and, and it really does seem that, you know, it's amazing how quickly these adhesions develop. I mean, when I first read those papers, mm -hmm. I was stunned, mm -hmm. you know, Wow, like how can these develop so quickly and then, you know. Uh, and so maybe people with back pain, extrapolating it to that, uh, I'm sure there is some potential adhesion development, right? I mean, I don't know what the literature is on that, but... Well, what we found is that adhesions, small adhesions, are present in almost every Z joint. So um, um, small adhesions are present all the time. And um, there, as you increase the length of hypomobility, the um, they increase in uh, in quantity. But then also, as you increase the time of hypomobility, the the size of the adhesions increase. You get more medium-sized adhesions, and we have criteria for the sizes and uh, more large adhesions. So we, we did um, 2, 4, 8, 12, and 16-week hypomobility animals and then had three types of controls um, that were age-matched and uh, did not have hypomobility and, uh, and found that um, even the controls had small adhesions um, but um, the longer that you had hypomobility, you got more small adhesions, but you also got more medium-sized adhesions. Large adhesions were not found in any of the control animals <clears throat> and were found in the 8, 12, and 16-week hypomobility animals with a significant increase in the 16-week. So by um, 16 weeks, uh, there was a uh, you know, very significant change in the in the in the size. So we think these small adhesions coalesce into medium size and then larger okay adhesions. Well, I'm just going to ask a question that I've always wanted to know and maybe okay. you know the answer to. And that is when I'm uh when I'm adjusting uh, patients, it seems like especially if if I perceive that problem has been there for a long time, so hypomobility of a certain mm -hmm. joint, it seems like I could work on uh that particular joint on someone for let's say a week or two pretty consistently like maybe every day or every other day 
and not get a whole lot of movement. Mm -hmm. And then I start getting some movement. Yeah. And then I start getting some cavitations. Mm -hmm. Do mm -hmm. you think that process is literally breaking up those adhesions? Is that, is that yes, what you I think do. it is? Yes, I do. I think so. And I think you're also stimulating um, synovial fluid um, in the joint and moving it around a little bit during your, yeah. during your manipulation. And so... Um, um, so I think that is what's happening. I think we've all experienced that, that, you know, you get this very stiff area, and then all of a sudden, uh, sometimes it might be one treatment, uh, they come in and you get the movement you want, <laughs> and then it yeah. seems like after that, um, uh, you don't really need to do that much more uh, after that. Sometimes yeah. it kind of regresses, but basically... Yeah. It continues. So the, the cavitation you mentioned is something that uh, we became interested in, and so we, we got a, a spin-off grant to study the, the cavitations and found that uh, cavitation is an indication. So we used accelerometers so we could identify which joint cavitates, and then we compared that with gapping. We found that cavitation is an indication that a joint has gapped, but does not necessarily indicate how much a joint is gapped. So, okay. so a joint that cavitates, a joint that does not cavitate, may gap as much as a joint that cavitates. But if a joint cavitates, it does gap basically. Okay. So and and so the gapping is related to cavitation and vice versa, and and it's probably related to the speed of the separation of the joint surfaces. And if you get into cavitation literature. Um, most of it's in marine um, um, biology, but not even biology, marine um, engineering, where rapid motion of a propeller in water will cause this cavitation. So air to, or, or excuse me, gas to come out of fluid uh, around the rapidly moving surface. Okay. And so that's what we think the cavitation is. You separate the joint surfaces and you pull um, uh, gas, probably carbon dioxide, out of the fluid, and that rapid motion then is accompanied by a sound, the okay. cavitation sound. And so, um, uh, so cavitation actually is actually the, the the formation of a gas bubble. And and I used to think, well, that seems hard to do, you know, making these gas bubbles. But when you think about the, the body in particular, how easily gas exchanges, especially in the lungs, right. how, how easily carbon dioxide comes out of blood and how easily oxygen goes back in. And so gas is constantly being exchanged from these fluids. And so it makes sense that you create a vacuum and you pull, and you pull uh, the gases out of the fluid. And, um, and, and for the students that may be listening... Uh, or just general public, the the cavitation that we're talking about is that popping sound. Yes, right. Uh, when we when we get adjusted. Yes. And um, so that that popping sound. What what type of gases uh, are those, Greg? We think it's carbon dioxide because that comes out of the fluid the most uh, readily. Um, I know that for a time people were talking about nitrogen. Yeah, it, uh, there's not as much nitrogen, and it probably comes out of fluid a little. Uh, uh, less readily, um, and and so you know that's it's possible that there might be some nitrogen in there. Well, that's we really don't know for sure, but okay. uh, we think it's carbon probably dioxide. carbon dioxide. So yeah. this would would this be analogous to opening a pop can? Where uh, yeah, yeah, know, basically the the 
pressure is going from high to low and uh, yes there is that there is uh so uh in the can it is completely fluid mm -hmm. and you open the can and change the pressure and the carbon dioxide uh, uh comes out of the fluid very readily and that's okay. what causes the uh the fizz and the gas and the in the in pop great yeah. great and now do you think that has do you think there is a mechanism behind that that contributes to the adjustment somehow, or do you think that's more or less a side effect of of gapping the joint? Do you, do you think there's, in other words, do you think there's some physiological mechanism behind the transference of the gas that could somehow relate to a positive change with the adjustment, or do you think it's a more mechanical or neurological? Uh, you know, I never really thought of the gas as being... Because I know some people say, well, it doesn't matter if you don't get sound. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. it doesn't matter if you don't get sound in, in uh, doing an adjustment. Um, and so I, I, I personally think that um, it doesn't particularly matter, especially taking that one case, you know, where you've had somebody who's been stiff for a long period of time or you think they've been stiff. Mm -hmm. And then over a week or two weeks maybe, then you start to get some of the cavitations. There's still got to be some benefit mm -hmm. uh, leading up to that. Yeah. Not yeah. getting any cavitations for sure. No, I, I agree with that. I think um, the cavitation has to do with the speed of the separation. Mm. Because what we found, we found some joints that cavitated multiple times, um, which had not been reported before. So we had some joints that, that cavitated three times during an adjustment. Interesting. Yeah. And so the same joint, the same joint, because what we what I learned in school was that it took about 20 minutes. Right. Yeah. So this is this is new stuff. Yeah. We think uh, what happens is that in these in and what we did, we so we studied these multiple cavitating joints uh, and did a sub analysis on them. And the MRI scans before the adjustment in the multiple cavitating joints, those joints were narrower uh, significantly narrower than the joints that cavitated once or didn't cavitate at all. And so we think that that's an indication that there was probably a little more uh, muscle tightness around the area. Maybe uh, maybe the capsule was a little tighter. Um, and so uh, when the resistance was enough to separate the joint surfaces, we think they separated more rapidly and kind of, in in this case, ratcheted you know pop 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 okay uh, as they uh, opened up and so we um one of the people on the team said so um and this is speculation i want to say that but so the joints that cavitate may um be the most restricted to begin with and so the cavitation may be an indication that these more restricted joints finally in your you know with this uh, uh, we're able to completely open up easily. Okay. Whereas the joints that don't cavitate um, uh, may be more um, easily opened, and so they uh, and so the speed is not there's not that resistance to begin with, and so there's not that a very rapid separation. Interesting. So, I think back to your case, I think you're still breaking up some adhesions, the joint surfaces probably aren't separating really rapidly or far enough for the gas to enter uh, or there's some uh, something limiting the, the gas 
being created in the joint. And, uh, but when you get to a certain point, then they open rap more rapidly, and, you're, um, and that's when you hear a cavitation. And maybe you'll never hear a cavitation in some joints that finally right. open up, or you have your patient on their side posture at night, <clears throat> and they're breaking up adhesions, and it's loosening up. And they may never have a lot of cavitations, but they're but they're gapping, doing the gapping process. Yeah, and, and uh, attending some of these re- rehab uh, type courses over the years, it seems, uh, you know, one of the theories that I've heard at least is that, you know, as children, uh, we do all these big sprawling movements. Kids get out of bed and they're just doing all this stretching. Uh, it seems like maybe that's part of what they're doing is breaking up some of these adhesions. It's almost like an innate... Yeah an innate kind of way to take care of this themselves and then we somehow lose this <laughs> or we don't think about this ability and we just go about our lives over the That's years. That's another good point that stretching, the importance of stretching to create motion in, in joints. <clears throat> and also when tissues are growing, the fascial planes can develop adhesions between them. So some people have crepitus, kind of a different, we're studying crepitus now in, okay. in joints and trying to use the accelerometry and microphones to assess the joints before, during, and after adjusting and during motions to see if we can get some diagnostic information from joint sounds. And so crepitus is the largest example, you know, the most prominent example and, of... And crepitus is the, the sounds that a joint would make as it goes through, kind of like an arthritic sound. Exactly, or and it is related to arthritis. You get more crepitus uh, with more arthritis at crackling sound in a joint that we get as we get older. Now, some young people have crepitus between fascial planes, as you know. Uh, uh, if they, uh, Certain people, if they stretch, they'll get, you get these, you've had patients, I'm sure, the teenage patients, who they'll move and you get all kinds of sounds yes. uh, uh, frequently in their back, uh-huh. and that's the fascial, that's the, the fascial planes moving, and they're just not... Um, they don't have as much lubrication in the uh, in the planes. So these the are these are basically adhesions, uh, yes. for lack of a better term. Yeah, within the fascia. Yes, yes, amazing, yes. Mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. And so, um, so and that fascia research is really taking off now, yes. right? I mean, that's oh, really totally. important. And how how does manipulation affect fascia, and how does uh, massage therapy certainly affects it? in other CAM modalities. Well, uh, I want to start wrapping up here soon, um, but before we wrap up, I want to ask you about uh, one of your recent, more recent focuses on evidence-based practice. Uh, I know you've uh, gotten uh, NIH funding Mm -hmm. uh, for implementing, well, studying and implementing an evidence-based practice into a chiropractic curriculum. and uh, I'm, I was, uh, or am a part of the the committee uh, for uh, for this at National. Um, but can you tell us where you are in that process uh, of this evidence based project, and just a maybe a quick overview of what that is? Yes, they were called R twenty five grants, and uh, NIH had funded a number of medical schools, um, fifteen medical schools, for five years to imp- to. Um, to provide information on complementary and alternative medicine in medical curricula. And then um, they decided that 
it would be a good idea to support CAM institutions to develop um, evidence-based curricula in their own. So, so these became called the, kind of the reverse R25s. And they were four-year awards, and you could renew once, so a maximum of eight years of funding. So we were one of the first uh, to be uh, funded, along with Western states. Um, we were the first two chiropractic uh, colleges, and then Northwestern, and then Palmer in subsequent years. And, um, and so the first four years focused on developing an evidence, in our program, developing an evidence-based practice curriculum in the DC uh, program, but we also then included, we have a Doctor of Naturopathic Medicine program and Oriental Medicine program, and we incorporated evidence-based uh, curriculum in, in all of those. And massage therapy also uh, has a portion of the curriculum. So um, students get uh, elements of um, accessing the literature, assessing the literature, um, appraising it, and implementing it in uh, in practice throughout the curriculum from the first trimester through the tenth. Uh, so we start out with um, searching the literature in the first trimester, and then um, study design and assessing the literature in second um, and uh, fourth. They have uh, a full EBP class. So second try, they have a full EBP class. They have uh, uh, lectures and labs in it uh, in every try and um, and so in fourth they really do a get a solid um, study of a study design and uh, assessing literature and then it progresses eighth try they get uh, um, meta-analyses and um, wow. compilations of the literature and then ninth and tenth we do journal clubs where they're applying it because journal clubs are so prominent now in uh, in all aspects of healthcare, all specialties have journal clubs at hospitals or whatever. Yeah. So we think we really prepare them for a multidisciplinary practice that way to be able to jump in. Makes me want to go back to school. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, you be a, well, you've presented as part of the program actually. So we get evidence-based practice practitioners to uh, uh, give presentations to the students so they can see how you can apply it in practice, and you're the perfect example of that. Then uh, other parts of that first grant were a mentored research program where we were required to partner with a, a traditional research-intensive institution. Ours was University of Illinois Chicago School of Public Health, and uh, they were wonderful there. We had some, uh, uh, Dr. Sylvia Ferner was the acting dean at the time of the first grant, and she really helped tremendously to integrate us, uh, integrate the programs, and um, and so we had a mentored research program for one student per year where they would unplug from national and plug into the UIC School of Public Health and uh, uh, do research with one of their researchers 20 hours a week and take two courses. And um, and we didn't expect, uh, we thought that would increase their interest, but uh -huh. we had six students go through that wow. uh, program. The, the first year was a setup year, and the last year, uh, was uh, we transitioned into a DCMPH uh, program. That was the second four years we we moved it to that and uh, and got it approved by all four divisions of the UIC School of Public Health, plus their uh, master's in clinical and translational sciences. But anyway, of the original six, um, four of them um, 
went on to get their MPH degrees, and two of them uh, are uh, have go- either have gone on and completed their PhDs, or are in the process of uh, have started their PhD in uh, at the School of Public Health. So that's great. Uh, it's been a really uh, unanticipated benefit of that program. And then the final part of it was faculty development. And we did a, a evidence-based practice faculty development process where we did a series of workshops and what we call OWLs, one-hour webinars, lectures, and sessions. And you uh, did one of the OWLs for yeah, the, uh, yeah. at the school. And, um, and then the second four years, we really focused. We had the student curriculum in place by then, and we got it sustainable. And uh, and it's still running, even though the grant ended in, uh, in this past summer. Okay. It was uh, was it ended July thirty first, and um, and uh, student curriculum's continuing. Uh, we do have the DCMPH is continuing, and faculty development. The last four years focused on faculty development um, through a series of workshops that have now been archived, and um, and these one hour webinars, lectures, and sessions. So. That's all we have. Uh, everything's up on the NUHS website. We have a full curriculum. Anybody who wants to start an evidence-based practice curriculum in a CAM institution or any institution, a lot of medical schools have tapped into it. Yeah, that's uh, The folks at Georgetown have really uh, been nice to refer to it frequently. And, um, and so um, uh, we have the full, there's a 300-page study guide on evidence-based practice, everything from... Um, uh, assess, uh, accessing the literature to assessing the literature to applying it. Okay. And um, uh, it, it's all up on our website. And <clears throat> I'll be checking students. that out. I yeah, wasn't and, aware of uh, that. Uh, try this activities for students in a curriculum uh, guide for uh, wow. faculty to uh, excellent to use. So um, part of the charge was to dissemination. We took that very seriously, <clears throat> and we're now working on papers to publish. Uh, the results of the three components, student education, mentored research, and faculty development. But uh, we, what we wanted to do is get it up uh, and distribute it as much as possible. So we put it up on the website and distributed it in CD form to all the CAM institutions and uh, excellent and um, uh, several medical schools. Very good. Well, so um, in concluding here, Greg, um, We've listened to, or we've talked about, uh, you know, your research over the years, uh, the interest that you have, um, evidence-based practice. Uh, I think there are some recurring themes over and over again, and that's uh, that's just great stuff. Uh, can you offer any advice to um, our students coming out, our chiropractic students who might be interested in becoming a chiropractic researcher? Mm-hmm. Um, Give them any advice uh, that you've seen over the years uh, if, if they want to end up either doing a Ph.D. or a master's or mm-hmm. somehow to contribute. And this doesn't have to be just uh, those who are necessarily interested in pursuing a research degree, but how can they get involved? Uh, how can we advance chiropractic research? Because uh, what I see, uh, Greg, is that we have a very strong research program I think within chiropractic Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm just thrilled to be a part of it and uh, I think you know people like yourself uh, that we have in the profession who are just pumping out excellent research Um, that's another reason why I wanted to do these talks was 
to get people familiar with what's out there because there's a lot of excellent research out there and if we could just educate chiropractors <laughs> and uh, certainly our patients about what's out there I think we'd be so far ahead from where we are now because we have a lot of stuff mm-hmm, mm-hmm. do you feel that as well yeah it's definitely growing and of course I uh, when I talk to the students I say if all of you became full-time researchers for five years then we could really get to where uh, we'd want to be but uh, uh, but I'm, I'm biased but to, to answer your question realistically I think um, so you have two different types of people you've kind of talked about those that are really focused on practice mm-hmm. but have an interest in uh, evidence-based practice yes so those folks should learn how to uh, write case studies and case reports and, and you've written these um, and so that's really important to get the you know, uh, chiropractic had so many good anecdotes over the years, but nothing was in the literature virtually. And now uh, there are, uh, people are starting to write case reports. And so when you get these good results, um, it should be reported. And if you have a treatment that doesn't work in a certain population, that needs to be reported too. Exactly. And and those can be used to to um, uh, for people who are full-time in research to develop projects that can be um, studied more thoroughly. Uh, Those who are really interested in research um, should find people at uh, their institution uh, that are doing research and tell them about it as soon as possible and get involved. Anybody who's really interested in research at our institution uh, can get a, a student assistantship basically or can work on an independent research study through a, an elective class. So you can get involved and then see if you really are interested or not. Um, and if you are, then uh, keep uh, tapping the brains of the folks that are doing the research, ask about programs. Um, and there are a lot of programs that are very interesting that um, that are interested in can- The folks at UIC are really interested in our students. They like uh, uh, the letters from all of the heads of the programs uh, said we en- we really like enjoy they use different terms for each person mm-hmm. having these cam students in our classes because they uh, help us diversify and help us to uh, to think of things that we don't uh, weren't thinking of so they enjoy it so it it's really is a symbiotic relationship and and um, and so you can have a very good academic experience after your cam degree. And it's time-consuming, and uh, and you can get expenses um, paid for through various mechanisms of fellowships. NIH has a loan repayment program if you stay as a researcher that they'll pay off your student loans. Uh, but you do need to get formal training in research. If you want to do clinical research, there are clinical research residencies and sometimes a master's degree on top of that uh, is uh, kind of the needed education. If you're interested in mechanisms and basic science, you really need to get a PhD uh, in order to um, uh, to learn the the skills and techniques, and also to be um, seen by reviewers of grants to allay their potential concerns that you may not have the um, the ability to conduct basic science research. They they look at a PhD as kind of a, a checkbox that they know that, you know, this person has done a certain type of training 
that will um, you know prepare them for um, research. So it becomes it's if you're really serious about it, you need to get grants to fund your research because it's very expensive to fund research, to do research, and you need external funding to do it. And the reviewers are very tough, and they um, and they want to see someone who's uh, who's done a lot of focused work. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Greg, any concluding uh, remarks at all? Well, I really thank you, Dean, for doing this. I think it's uh, every. Uh, I certainly like talking about myself and these, <laughs> and these sorts of things. So, I love it. So thank you for letting me talk about myself. Oh, uh, but anyway, uh, it's it's fun talking to you. You're a great uh, uh, person, and and uh, what you've done is terrific. So I, I always enjoy being with you. So thank well, you very much. Thank you very much for being on. Uh -huh.